Memes are constantly hunting for new mediums. Like fungus, they spread through each new information ecosystem, creating the living fabric that allows new ideas to sprout and helps old ideas to embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 246 of Embrace the Void, where we keep walking no matter how curvy the path gets. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking newest media atheism. So, Let's make with a like and subscribe. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Captain Dadpool, a.k.a. Ricky, a former Christian and Iraq war vet with a B.A. in Biblical Theology who now uses TikTok and other social media to educate people about the Bible. Ricky, would you like, uh, sorry, I should say, Captain Dadpool, would you like to say hi to the Void? <laughs> Hello, Void. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I don't want to make your regular listeners too uncomfortable by using your normal name, so we'll stick to <laughs> uh, fake names. So, yeah, I, we got to meet at AACon. You're one of the many wonderful people who I got to meet there. I got to see your talk, which was a lot of fun. Hopefully that video will be up if it isn't already by the time this comes out at some point soon because it was a it was a good talk it was very amusing and i want to sort of dive into some of the things that you chatted about a little bit on during that talk do you want to start off by giving folks a little bit of background of like where you're coming from with all of this and how you ended up on the tiktoks uh yeah so like you mentioned i have a bachelor's in biblical theology which i got because i wanted to be a pastor uh in my education that I got from Bible college led me to leave the faith and eventually stopped believing in God entirely. And then I was kind of a closet atheist for a couple of years. I listened to all the podcasts we're all familiar with and all that. And, uh, I downloaded TikTok as a, you know, just for funsies. Cause I was, I was at home all the time when the panorama hit schools and daycare centers shut down. I have four kids. So suddenly we had four kids and no one to do nowhere to nothing to do with them. So I had to, quit my job and my wife kept working so i stayed home with them and i was losing my mind so i was like hey let's see what this tiktok thing is all about so mm -hmm. i made like goofy little videos just skits of like my kids my cats and made i made some political takes mm -hmm. and then i made a, a video talking about or stitching a video uh responding to someone asking why you left the faith and in it i said i left the faith after i received my degree in biblical theology and that video went viral and I, my mm. following just kept growing ever since. Uh, so it was very unexpected, very unplanned. Interesting. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun. So that like, you, that left the faith story, because it's always, it's always interesting to me, sort of what was the thing for different people. So was it like reading the Bible, you know, like doing biblical theology, just like learning about the subject that made you realize that you didn't believe in it? Or how does that work? Yeah, basically, like I, I was, I was very, very flexible with my interpretations of the Bible. Like um, mm -hmm. I was never a biblical literalist. I recognized fairly early on that Genesis, the Genesis, the creation accounts, and Noah's Ark even were uh, allegorical in nature. You know, I'd always followed the science. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, all, all the genocides in the Old Testament that we bring up, you know, they they never actually happened. Don't tell the Christians. So I had no problem believing that the Israelites were just a group of people that were making up their own origin story, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so it was very flexible when it came to that. But my issue came when I started learning more about the New Testament, who Jesus actually was, the sources for the information that the New Testament is based off of, uh, the mm -hmm. fact that 
Uh, I was always told that the Gospels were written by four independent eyewitness testimony accounts. Uh, that's why they're reliable. It turns out that's not the case at all. We mm-hmm. have no eyewitness testimony of any of these events. The earliest source is Paul. Paul was not an eyewitness. So like yeah. things like that started like eating at my faith. And eventually I was just, I, eventually I remember this pretty vividly. I looked at my Bible and I was like, what even is this? What, what is this right now that I've spent so much time, money and energy studying that I believed is true? What, what is this? Mm-hmm. So yeah, eventually I was just like, I can't make myself believe this anymore. I tried very hard mm-hmm. uh, to hold on to my faith. Yeah. So you were radicalized by seminary basically. Yeah, um, pretty much. At, so this, yeah, I'm curious then, did you always have a very non-literal approach and like what was attracting you towards being a pastor that like was working for you and then wasn't working for you when you had this kind of come to not Jesus moment? Uh, yeah, I did have a, a very loose approach, a non-literal approach. Like I mentioned, I have no problem reconciling certain things, but there's some core issues that were non-negotiable for me. Mm-hmm. Part of my, I was always a Bible nerd, even before seminary. Um, wow. So I would always like listen to pastors' sermons and like pick apart the scripture and be like, that's not biblical. That's not what that text means. That's taken out of context. If you read the next verse, it actually means this. So like I was always like nitpicky. There is a position in a lot of larger churches. It's not very common. It's called a uh, a theology pastor. And basically, a what? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So what he what he does is he takes these the sermon of the head pastor and he vets them for to make sure mm. that they're biblically accurate. That was I like see. my dream job. I see. To be so that you were guy. like you were like an atheist who was like within the system already and wanted to just justify your. Um knowledge on these yeah so that makes sense was your family of a particularly like fundamentalist persuasion or no actually interesting um, to you just as a like a project yeah i I very much dodged that bullet Mm. my my mom is like spiritual in a sense she believes that there's something bigger out there kind of thing Mm -hmm. um my dad's kind of the same way but he's never really thought about it and you know they divorced when i was three Mm -hmm. so i never you know, had that was, uh, but I spent every other weekend with my grandma uh, on my mm-hmm. father's side. She was very, very religious, as well as my aunt and cousins and everything uh, on that side of the water. So I'd go every, I'd go spend every other weekend with them, and they take me to church, and that's where I got introduced to the ideas, to the basics, mm-hmm. very early on. Mm-hmm. Were you, you know, you said you didn't come out as an atheist for several years. Was it that you were worried about being marginalized or being sort of mis, you know, misrepresented or misunderstood by family members? Or like, what was your concern if they weren't coming from this highly religious background? There is a part of that. Now, now, now part of it is I just didn't realize that there were so many people out there similar to me who had a similar story that I did. I thought I was kind of a, an outlier, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. So I thought I, I didn't like seek out any communities. I'm, I'm not a super social. I'm not a super social person anyway. So like I, I never like sought out communities to be a part of. Mm-hmm. The community kind of found me. Yeah, I understand that feeling. I had a similar experience on this. Yeah, right. Uh, let me ask you a little bit about TikTok then. Cool. Speaking of the community that you did find. First of all, I think it's worth sort of addressing the elephant in the room. You, you are old for TikTok, right? My understanding of TikTok demographics is that you would be in the like geriatric Yeah, that's, level, that's fair to say. Basically. I'm, I'm yeah. 35 years old. Do you get a lot of shit for the other TikTokers for your, um, I for don't your age? Do they, they don't do like a, you know, old Kenobi kind of thing with you there? Surprisingly, no. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah, I've never had any... That, that's the last thing I think I've ever criticized for is my age. Okay, fair enough. Have you come across older, other like TikTokers? Because I, I guess I'm interested about it partly because you mentioned, you know, you, you picked it up because you needed something to do with your kids during the pandemic. Um, I, I guess, I you know, TikTok for me feels inaccessible in various kinds of ways. And so I wonder how it felt. Why, did it feel accessible to you because you're kids were already on there or into it or something uh no yeah my, my kids don't use tiktok um they, they've seen like tiktok videos on youtube and stuff mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and they know about my my tiktoks they see me make them uh but they're not old enough um mm-hmm. 
or they, they also don't like have a phone or anything. That's okay. So you just picked TikTok because is, is it because you have the kids that like you picked TikTok because it was the only thing short enough that you could actually manage it in between having the having to deal with the well, yeah the that's that's actually yeah. that's actually a big part of it. Um, uh-huh. I, I struggle with YouTube because it's it's such a time commitment to make those right. videos, and I don't have right. a lot of know how when it comes to video editing anyway. Mm-hmm. So like TikTok's very easy to figure out, and yeah, you can make ten seconds of a video, go make the kids dinner finish making your make more of the video clean up dinner make the rest of the video so yeah it is very easy to um to, to make content mm-hmm. it seems like there's a kind of like dirtbag mimetic kind of language to tiktok where it's like it's like the kind of memes online that are almost designed to be a lot of it's like feels like it's designed to not be highly produced you know and so it's yeah. like you know there's a there's a style of like you know you got the camera vertical and all this sort of you know you're randomly walking somewhere doing while talking and stuff like that that seems like it's a common common technique yeah that's that's one thing that's interesting about tiktok is um i I never thought i would get any sort of following or anything i know again i wasn't never tried to because i don't have like production quality that you find on youtube and and such Mm -hmm. um but what i learned is what people appreciate the most about TikTok is authenticity. Um, mm. Everything's very raw. Everything's very visceral. It's it's not really planned ahead of time. It's not edited to make the creator look good so much. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, you, you have people on TikTok who are having like mental breakdowns and like recording. You, you see like the raw emotions there and people are mm. like being authentically themselves, whether it's good and or bad. Um, and that's what people... I've, I've gotten so much feedback on that. Uh, people, people appreciate my authenticity. They see me as being authentic. I'm like, Oh, that's, that's good. But I thought that was a bad thing. <laughs> like I am authentic, but I thought that was a bad thing to be authentic. Um, right. Yeah. Well, bad, bad for branding for sure. Yeah. You're, you're uh, supposed like, to be, you're supposed to be a character, you know, you're supposed mm-hmm. to, to, to play a certain role, a certain part. Um, mm. And you, you just don't really have that so much. You do have that on TikTok, but. Right. There are characters for sure. But yeah. it's interesting that there's an authenticity lane, at least. Because when I think of TikTok, I guess I sort of think of it's sort of being like the Twitter of YouTube, right? Where it's like, it's short. You're not, you know, it's off. It feels to me like it's often like kind of dunky, potentially like it leans sort of towards short dunky videos or kind of absurdist videos or something like that. Um, You you know, and I don't think it's like all like bad content or something. I think there's a lot of really interesting, innovative kind of micro content going on uh, on Twitter, but I don't think of it, I guess a lot of times as being a space for like nuance, authenticity, sophistication or something like that. Do you feel like, there is sort of a version of that that goes around in these spaces. Yeah, I'd say definitely. So um, another thing about TikTok is there's a there's a community mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of built that reminds me of Twitch. For anyone who's familiar with Twitch, um, mm-hmm. there there's a community aspect of it, and that's why they appreciate the authenticity. Is like when you're having mm-hmm. a bad day, you make a video like, "Hey guys, I'm not gonna make, I'm not gonna be making any content today. I'm having a rough day," uh, you know. So People are like, "Hey, man, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. Feel free to reach out if you need help. I hope you're feeling well. Take the mm-hmm. time you need. Take a break, man. You you deserve it." Um, so yeah, there, there's very much this communal aspect of TikTok that you don't have on like YouTube or or even Twitter. Ah, interesting. Yeah, can you um say a little bit about that because you know y'all at the AA con showed up and there was sort of like I actually had found out ahead of time because I was um chatting with organizers and they were like yeah there's going to be like a whole contingent of tiktokers like there was a cluster of y'all that uh a lot of whom i got to met who were really cool um, and i'm probably going to chat with very one various people at, at uh, some point um but can you say a bit about like what is the vibe of tiktok atheism like what is the community's interests like what kind of content do you feel like is in general like doing well or being produced in that area um what i think is being done well is there's a lot of atheists that are very well educated on 
biblical exegesis, theology, church history, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And they're sharing educational content, um, which is strangely enough, there's a larger than you'd think demand for among the atheist community, because you have all these people who are former Christians who are like, Hey, I always wondered what this scripture means. Can you, can you elaborate on that? So like you have people mm-hmm. that are answering those questions and then you have people who are, who have completed the deconstruction process, uh, who are asked mm-hmm. for advice on how to get through that. And so you make content saying, here's how you can deal with this problem. Here's how you can deal with that problem. We can even give resources. Um, I direct people from or to a recovering from religion uh, all the time. It's like self deprogramming Um, content kind of things. Yeah, very much so. Mm -hmm. Um, And so are are there particular beyond the like biblical verse analysis? Are there particular kinds of like mindset deprogramming stuff that you and personally have like focused on making videos around like things that were like really deep hooks for you when you were in the religious side of things that you, you know, had to process through working your way out of. Yeah. I would say, um, a lot of what the, a a lot of what's in the Bible, because as, as a Christian, I, I read the Bible and I believed the Bible and I, I, I knew the Bible as a Christian, you guys, mm-hmm. and I fucking knew that mm-hmm. shit. Um, but then I realized I, I don't actually know much of it at all. And now as an atheist, I, I, I'm, I'm going back and I'm like, okay, so what, what did, what does this story actually mean? Where does it actually come from? So like, I'm, I'm, I'm much more fascinated by the Bible now as mm-hmm. an atheist than I am. I get criticized by that all the time. Like, why do you spend so much time? You're obsessed reading the Bible. I'm like, it's a more fascinating book now. Right. Than it was when I was a Christian. Um, That's interesting. And like, I totally know what you mean about the like, this is something I've seen a lot talking to different folks. You know, people need different things at different points on their journey through, you know, growing out of these uh, groups or, or changing their positions on them or something. And at various points, people need dunking. At various points, people need biblical analysis. Like not everyone gets to read you know, don't know much about the Bible growing up or something. And so like, it's helpful, I think, for those kind of folks to have uh, that kind of catch up. Let me, let me ask you something that maybe, um, because I imagine a lot of times you're often being sort of critical of stuff in the Bible. Is there some passage or story or even just a quote or something that you're, even after all these years, you're like, that's, that's damn good work, right? Like, that's really a strong idea or story or something. Yeah, definitely. Like um, mm-hmm. Easy. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Is... Oh, that was not what have been my guess. Well, yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> it's probably my favorite book. Um, it's written, supposedly written by um, King Solomon, who um, started his reign as King kind of rough, indulged in a lot of pleasures, um, like but he kind of straightened up towards the end of his life and he got everything in order. He established a godly kingdom. Well, his son was set to take over. Um, and his Mm -hmm. son was not like him at all. So he was dreading handing over his kingdom to his son. So he was this, if you read Ecclesiastes, he's just this, this emo kid who's like, it's all pointless. It's all very Hamlet-y kind of situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, Uh and every, every chapter he's like, um, eat, sleep and be merry for tomorrow we die. Um, Mm. you know, it's a very annihilationist, very nihilistic um, ideology that is taught in that book. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, That's coming from the sun in particular has that kind of nihilistic hedonism or yeah, coming from King Solomon, who's like, Oh, from Solomon himself. I, yeah. Uh-huh. He's like, I, I've spent my entire life dedicated to God building up this kingdom. Um, right. And it's all going to go away as soon as my son takes power. So he was like extremely depressed um, in the latter part of his life. Uh, and so it's kind it's of a Michael Corleone situation. Is that yeah, where so, Eat, Drink, and Be Merry for Tomorrow Will Die comes from? That yes. story? Exactly, Interesting. That's exactly where that comes from. Yeah. That's, yeah, because I often think of some of that stuff as almost being a kind of, I interpret it existentially as being, you know, just because you're going to die at some point doesn't mean that you can't eat, sleep, and drink, and be merry and all these things, right? Yeah. Like we can live in the moment and, and, and still take pleasure from that. Um, and like, 
that's not a depressing idea to me. So it's interesting to hear that in context, it's coming from someone who's like depressively nihilistic. Yeah. And this, this was a guy who had everything. He had 400 wives, a thousand concubines, all the money you could ever imagine. Godly wisdom, a kingdom, a castle, like everything you could ever want. Hard to have godly wisdom and also a bunch of concubines though, right? Like, yeah. Well, there, there's like a, whole... a contradiction in terms there. Yeah. Well, the, Biblically, God blessed him with those because the God of the Old Testament is not the same sure. as the God of the New Testament. Right, because the God of the Old Testament's a pig, <laughs> I guess. You won't hear that in Sunday school, but... No, it, it seems like a reoccurring theme, yeah. though. There's a lot of pimping in... God's got a weirdly, yeah. like, pimp-slash-eugenics like vibe in the Old Testament, I feel like. Yeah, uh, God, God is not shy about rewarding his chosen people. When they do so good, why? he's yeah. also not shy about punishing them when they do bad. Yeah, he's very straightforward, I guess, in that way. It gets, gets more mysterious, I guess, as the, the Bible goes on. Do you... So why that particular one as the thing that, like, still stands out to you is meaningful? Is it because you feel sympathetic to the nihilism? Is it because you feel like you are inverting that nihilism like I do and towards an existentialism? Like, how do you... Makes, why does that still yeah, impact you? Yeah, kind of. Also, um, he doesn't mention God a whole lot in the book he does mm -hmm. mention god but not nearly as much as god is mentioned in other books mm -hmm. um so it, it he's very down to earth he's very introspective um, when he's writing these words um and mm -hmm. a lot of what he says you hear other atheists saying you know like uh this is the only life we have enjoy it mm -hmm. tomorrow we die you know mm -hmm. so it's it you can relate to it um, interesting yeah so you feel like you can carry that with you without the like the religious attachment side of it a little bit yeah and um another one is that i just remembered mm -hmm. is um actually a teaching of jesus when he said um winston in matthew fuck 16 anyway uh winston <laughs> winston giving alms do I'm not calling up your professor and telling them yeah. i can't remember the, the... can't remember now Whence giving alms, do not blast a trumpet on the corner like the Pharisees do. Verily sure. I say unto you, they have received their reward. Instead, go into a quiet place in the closet and pray to the Father. So that is to say, do good deeds in secret. Don't mm -hmm. make it known. Don't put it on for show because that's that's your reward. You're seeking recognition from man. You're seeking uh, social approval, social acceptance, social praise. You're not mm -hmm. doing it because it's the right thing to do. You're not doing it because your heart aches. You know, you, you don't give money to the poor because you you care about them. You give money to the poor and then you go out and you're like, hey, guys, I gave this amount of money to this poor person on the corner. Like, that's what you're after. You're after right. people, you know, be like, oh, you're such a good person. That's what you care about. Um, so, yeah, the whole concept of doing good deeds in secret uh -huh. um, is... I like it's, it's, it's not unique. Jesus was not the first one to say this. Right. But from from my upbringing, that was the first uh -huh. time I've really heard it. Yeah, I like that those are two, you know, what I would think of as fairly sort of secularly moral ideas, right? Um, are you... So, so we also want to talk some about philosophy. So this is, I think, a good way to transition into this because I do think there's a lot of philosophy in those passages you know, when we were talking on your show and, and at AACON, you sort of conveyed to me that you have like anxiety to some extent around talking about philosophy. Um, and I wonder, I guess I'm curious, first of all, was philosophy covered much during your theological uh, education? So, for example, that story could be really, you know, easily interpreted from like an Aristotelian virtue ethics, you know, the, do the right thing for the right reason and habituate yourself to care about the actual good thing and not the praise or reward that you get from it. Did, did y'all talk about that kind of stuff at all in, when you were like analyzing texts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they, there was a couple of psycho or psychology, uh, philosophy classes that we took, but they were uh, very rudimentary. Um, mm -hmm. So it didn't really get very deep into it. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it's it's when you get like to the next, I don't know, I, I guess the next stage uh, where all these different philosophical terms, uh, terminology comes up that mm. 
can be hard to decipher the nuances in Mm -hmm. um, that it becomes kind of like, eh, I'm going to stick with theology. (laughs) Well, that's funny because they've like theology hell. So you're like all things have their specialized languages, right? So do you feel like you just learn, you're very familiar and comfortable with the sort of that particular set of language and it's hard to pick up a new language kind of. Yeah. So theology is definitely has no shortage of its own weird terminology. Um, Sabellianism, Mm -hmm. pathopastianism, amillennialism, transubstantiation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But Mm -hmm. the, the thing for me is like, I can attach um, there's a timeline where these ideologies um, come about and how they evolve. There's probably my, Oh, what, the things that I'm most fascinated about when it comes to theology and the Bible is seeing how these theological concepts evolved and changed and why they evolved, what socio-political economic issues caused these ideas to change. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a timeline you can attach them to. So it makes it easier like to track, uh-huh. um, I guess. So do you feel like in general, you're a narrative learner where it's like, if I wanted to, teach you secular moral philosophy, what I should do is teach you the history of secular moral philosophy, you know, from like ancient India or, you know, Greece or all these ancient places up through the present. Yeah, I'd say so. If, if you could show me like how these ideas evolved over time, like that is, that is my like number one fascination. Yeah. Well, there are some interesting specific narratives that we could talk about let me let me work into that maybe by sort of doing some intuition pumping on you as an individual um you know my personal interest obviously is always going to be in the moral philosophy world and i i've talked a lot about how i think that secular individuals often are a bit hand shy about talking about moral philosophy because they come from backgrounds where that stuff was associated with god and they're not sure how to carry it over and those sorts of things um so i'm curious where do you feel like you are now with regard to like moral questions do you feel like it's different from where you were before do you have a sense of like what drives you when you're trying to make moral choices i don't know that's a tough one to answer Hmm. um I've always kind of just did what I thought was right. I'm one of those like hyper empathetic people. And sometimes I hate that about myself, but, um, Mm -hmm. it's easy to like see a person who's hurting and feel for them. And like, I, I know the right decision to, or what I can do to help them or what they could have done differently. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, so like you have like a pre-theoretical sort of emotional, intuitive-based approach to yeah, that's a good way you to know, put it. how you try to help people, which is not, I think, a bad thing. I think there's lots of people who have, I think well, the majority of people probably are somewhere in that world where they don't necessarily have, you know, clearly carved out ethical principles. They probably have, you know, some intuitions about trade-offs, but mostly it's just about not harming and trying to reduce harm and things like that. Yeah. Let me ask, how did that go for you? Because you said you're an Iraq war vet. Um, mm-hmm. Was that, was it tough, I guess, as an empathic individual? How did you cope in the military as an empathic individual? Or did that not cause issues? Um, it didn't cause any issues. When the time came to... I guess sever those emotions and do what you know you needed to do at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it wasn't that hard. Um, I didn't really have any hesitation, you know, whenever I had to make any difficult decisions. Um, but if I'm doing like a casual like patrol, um, and mm-hmm. you, uh, one of my favorite things about my deployment uh, was uh, giving the kids candy and pencils. Sure. Um, we would go to um, a bigger base um, and we would do what's called refit where we'd get like hygiene products, whatever. And me and a bunch of other people, I was definitely not the only one to do this. Uh, we would buy candy and pencils and things so that when we're out on mission, because our mission is really eight hours long, more than that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we'd be sitting on the truck because I was a gunner. So we have a driver in the gunner sit in the truck and the dismounts, they would go out and they'd be gone for like hours just walking around. 
And so we'd have all the kids come up to us and be like, you know, they, they would like sing and dance to us. And like, I would throw candy and pencils to them. Like, mm-hmm. um, so that was really fun. And like, I'd get on the ground and like teaching like secret handshakes, you know, like fist bumping that we do here in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that, that was very fun. But um, there were times where we dealt with literal Taliban uh, or Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much, not so much Taliban, but we definitely had a lot of issues with Al Qaeda. Um, they like to launch mortars at us. Um, so yeah, whenever, well, you know, tame, whenever the time came to deal with them, it was, it was like, no, you've been shooting mortars at me for three weeks. <laughs> right. Um, How did that, um, play in what role did that have any play in your like, transition from Christianity to atheism were you still religious when you were in the military and then you went into yeah. seminary and so that's correct what was, your, what was your experience as a sort of Christian in that space and do you have feelings in hindsight about like what you saw there on, on like the religious dimension of this war yeah it um it made me a very cynical Christian um, when I got back mm. to the states um yeah, it's the best way I can describe. I was a cynical Christian, and then when um, there, there's there's a distinction between when I left Christianity and when I stopped believing in God. Right, so I left Christianity because of my education. I left. I stopped believing that God existed for different reasons, and part of that was like reflecting on what I experienced. Like you have, um, like I said in my talk, um, part of our mission was to find IEDs or roadside bombs. And most of those were not planted for us. They were planted for rival villages um, mm-hmm. along routes that they would drive. And there was part of the whole Sunni versus Shia war. And the reason this is, is because their ancestors disagreed on who was supposed to take up the mantle of after the prophet died. You know, mm-hmm. that's why the Sunni and Shia have been at war. Like for, you know, 1600 years, 1400 years, um, that's why they're trying to kill each other. That's why they're planting bombs on the road to try and blow each other up because their ancestors disagreed on this one thing. So I'm like, you'd think if there was a God, he would come down and be like, you would straighten this out in some mm-hmm. way. Like, uh-huh. um, so it was like, it, it, there's too much chaos. Um, a lot of people leave their faith because of the problem of evil. I like to call it the problem of chaos. There, there's mm-hmm. too much chaos. Um, going on for there to be an orderly God uh, orchestrating right. a, a just world would it be an ordered world to some extent and it doesn't seem yeah. like we have either yeah yeah exactly right. I mean, it's, yeah it's interesting it's also interesting to me um, I don't know if you know John Rawls the guy who writes the theory of justice which really like heavily in, if you look at the history of ideas right if you want to like understand modern ethics in a sense modern ethics was restarted by John Rawls, it had kind of died off because it had been sort of pushed into a, you know, language problems kind of category almost. Um, he became an atheist because of seeing the effects of the atomic, supposedly because, he, because of seeing the effects of the atomic bombs dropped in Japan um, mm. during the, and another, I think other things probably that he saw during the war. But like, that is an interesting one where, you know, it's a common refrain, like there are no atheists in foxholes, but it does seem like a lot of people's, you know, fall from belief can often come from a very vivid experience of the problem of evil, it seems like. Yeah. Something else I wanted to ask you about the experiences in the military. You know, there was a lot of writing about the way that the military kind of weaponized Christianity in a sense. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you experienced or something that you saw in your time there? I I don't think it was something that was weaponized. Um, most people in the military will say that they're Christian, but they don't act Christian. Um, mm-hmm. They're not Bible thumpers. Um, yeah, they're, they're normal everyday people. Uh, they drink, cuss. Um, uh-huh. everything and they don't really go to church some of them do but not a whole lot but if you ask them if they're christian they'll say yes you know it is it's weird mm-hmm. um 
Now, when you're in the military, Christianity is sort of the norm. Uh, whenever there's a change of command ceremony or a promotion ceremony, um, the chaplain will come and give a prayer and you're expected to partake of that prayer. You don't have to literally, but you got to kind of go through the motions at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is kind of like the default setting, I guess, in the military is Christian, but very few people in the military are, are practicing Christians, believe me. Did you know people who were like non-Christians were there? Very were there few. Over atheists? Okay. Uh-huh. Very, very few. Um, and you just feel like that's because they're, like if they're if they're there, they're hiding it basically. Well, it's not so much that they're hiding it. We don't really talk about it a whole lot. Um, even religion, like every now and then, like the topic will come up, and we'll talk about religion, spirituality, or anything. But it's not very common. Like mostly, everyone's talking about guns and knives and beer and like that. Interesting. That's kind of mostly what gets talked about. Video games. What do you think about that in hindsight? Like, I think there's a fair point to be said that that conflict was a, you know, a religious war in a sense that like it was sold to Americans as a war, you know, of the West, the Christian West against the Muslim Middle East. Oh, yeah. It was absolutely painted that way. Right. And so it's interesting that in that space, y'all aren't talking about religion, right? It's not, there's not a conversation about like, what are we doing here in the middle of a jihad in this way? Um, You know, how does that feel in hindsight? Do you feel like it was sort of an avoidance thing or do you just feel like, you know, it was just like a gig and you weren't thinking about it that way? Yeah. I kind of wouldn't really think about it that way. Uh, We we're pawns. We're pawns Mm -hmm. in a political game. Mm -hmm. Um, that's that's all it is. You know, you have the politicians that are like, "This is a religious war, Christianity versus Islam, whatever, etc." Um, and we're not thinking that way. We're just like, "Oh, we get to go to war, cool, whatever." You know, some people are more excited yeah. about it than others, uh, but the soldiers themselves—they're not like, "Yeah, we need to go fight for Jesus." Like, you're not going to find a soldier say that. You're gonna you're gonna be hard pressed to find a soldier who's gonna have that kind of mentality. Interesting. Um, Why do you, so? Do you feel like there's a high level of like detachment? Do you feel like the system is set up where you're meant to feel sort of a very low level of you know anything beyond doing your responsibilities kind of sense of I, things? I think it's a You, when you join the military, you sign a contract, right? And you are property of the U.S. government. It doesn't matter how you feel. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Um, you you do what you're told for X amount of years. Mm-hmm. And so whatever happens, happens. The only thing you can control, and this is a very stoic uh, way of thinking, the only thing you can control is your reaction to those things. Um, so when we, we, when we receive news that we're going to get deployed... Um, you do, I, I know, uh, I know one person personally who, um, claimed he was going to commit suicide if he had to deploy. I know one person who shot himself in the foot to stop himself from getting deployed. So there are people who are like, no, I don't, I don't want to do this. And they do whatever they can to get out of it. Uh, but for the the vast majority of, of us, we're just like, yeah, this is what I signed up for. Uh, let's do it. In hindsight, does that all seem like horribly exploitative to you? Or do you just feel like it just is what it is kind of? It, it is exploitative. Um, but it's also it is what it is. Like it's exploitative in, in the fact that um, they recruit. They recruit you to go to war with the promise of giving you a paying for your college education. Um, giving you all these benefits, yada, yada, mm-hmm. yada. Um, all you have to do is maybe go to war for us and die. You know, so, but everybody signs that contract knowing that's, there's a, that's, that, that risk is there. But when that risk comes to fruition, some people are just like, yep, nope, just kidding. I'm going to shoot myself in the foot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that why you joined was for the like financial incentive side of things? 
not really financial incentive for me. It was um because I was just I was ready to grow up and be independent. Um, I tried. I dropped out of high school to join the military, um, and they wouldn't take me because I had a gunshot wound in my shoulder. Um, How'd that happen? <laughs> oh, did you miss that part of the talk? Um, uh, I, did I? Was that in the talk? Oh, wait, oh no, I remember. You, right, you got shot in a um, just a random like street shooting situation or something, right? I was a, I was a, a bagger at a grocery store called Food Lion, right. and uh-huh. uh, two guys came in, and one guy uh, shot me point blank in the back. The round went through the back of my shoulder, in between my shoulder joint and my shoulder blade, and it came out in between like two ribs. Yeah, you talk very uh, nonchalantly about things like that in war. I've noticed. Oh, <laughs> uh, it was a long time ago. It's uh, weird that that wasn't your um, problem of evil moment. You were like, God, why did I just randomly get shot while I was bagging? Yeah, right. <laughs> I said to see it happen to other people because you're an empath. So, yeah, uh, I couldn't join the military because of that, because they were worried, like, basic training would re-agitate the wound, whatever. Um, hmm. So I I went, I took out loans and went to college because that's when people were like, oh, you have a gift for ministry. God's calling you to ministry. You need to go. So, hmm. um, and... You know, I did I did one year at one school and I got kicked out for skipping chapel. This is a whole thing we don't have to get into. Um, mm-hmm. And then I did another year at a local Bible college. And I was just I was living it with an elderly couple from church at the time. And I was just like, God, I'm, I want to get out on my own. I want to have my own apartment, whatever. Uh, I was I was working at Starbucks at the time when I was in, at school. Uh, so I was like, hey, let's try the military thing again. This time I did not tell them about my gunshot wound. Uh, so I was able to to go back in. So yeah, it was it was really out of a desire for independence and mm. um, and really confidence. I was a very insecure person back then. Uh, so I was like, they I'm wouldn't let you go in the chaplaincy, huh? <laughs> I didn't try. Oh, um, interesting. I could have been a really desperate not person. not to do the actual pastoral stuff, huh? Why why well, was it that you were tu- you know touched or tapped as being like? like good for pastoral stuff were you doing like speaking public speaking stuff or something that i I did i preached uh every now and then um i also knew the bible very very well um Mm -hmm. so like i could i could bring up verses like that uh, off the top of my head whenever we're doing bible studies or just having casual conversations so like people are like yeah you have a gift for discernment or uh, what was it? Divine Revelation, I think it was called. Um, and these were elders that were like, yeah, you, you need yeah. to go into ministry, young man. Of course, I ate that, that up, you know? Yeah. I guess I wonder how often that happens, how like, you know, like fairly switched on individuals in religious communities show an aptitude, but because, you know, like what there is to show an aptitude towards is the religious stuff that they end up sort of getting pulled into, um, you know, this kind of seminary or rabbinical or whatever kinds of traditions there are within those communities where, like, the reality is they probably should just be going to, like, college for a general education to find out what they actually want to apply that aptitude towards. Do you feel like that was sort of how it worked out for you, basically? Um, can you rephrase the question? I think I'm a little... Yeah, so I guess I'm just wondering. So actually, what it made me think of when you were talking about that was uh, there's a great book I love called 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, um, which is about, you know, atheism is about arguments for God, but it's also about community and, you know, the choices, the trade-offs we make. And one of the characters in it is a sort of brilliant young mathematician who's also the son of a rabbi in an orthodox tradition. And it's like he's expected to take over the rabbinical, you know, responsibilities when his father retires or passes on or whatever. And, you know, he's sort of viewed as being like particularly um, like touched by God for doing that work because of this, you know, mathematical genius expertise. And he like there's a there's a you know beautiful scene where he starts to describe, you know, they ask him to name the angels and he starts doing like complex multiple prime number stuff, mm-hmm. you know, but he's doing it through a kind of religious language lens, essentially. 
Um, and so I, I just, I think about that sometimes. And it also makes me think about like, I feel like there's quite a few folks who are individuals trying to do like movement atheism stuff who were formerly pastors. And it's like, I, mean, I don't think it's all just, you know, people who want to hear themselves talk, whatever they're doing. I think it's also that like those individuals were probably, you know, questioners more, you know, and that's part of why they ended up in those positions before they moved out of them. Do you feel like your uh, like the some of the a lot of the things that you learn beyond just the biblical verses carries over into the work that you're doing now that it's similar sorts of skill sets or techniques or things like that or how does it feel like that stuff transfers over for you i would say being learning to be skeptical of everything mm-hmm. not just the bible or not just religion not just claims to the supernatural or claims to god um, being skeptical of every claim because, you know, we always say like, you know, what, what, what's the evidence? What's the, what's the evidence? So like, if I hear that there's somebody who's being accused of abusing their wife, right? Mm-hmm. What's the evidence? Mm-hmm. No, you're, you're not supposed to ask for evidence. You're just supposed to take their word for it. No, that's not how that works. I, what is the evidence? Oh, the evidence is a video of him literally abusing his wife. Okay, cool. Now we can move forward. Like, um, I, I can't just take a claim like that and jump on board. I need. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical of like everything, not just religion or claims of supernatural um, mm-hmm. and anything like that's done. Like, I'm, I'm a registered Democrat. Uh, anything that's done in the Democratic Party and like, was was that a good thing that they did that? Did they really do that? Yeah, right. I'm not going to be like, yeah, praise Joe Biden. I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be like, Let, let's take a look at this quick before we react. Mm-hmm. Um, so that gets into sort of like some theory of knowledge, epistemology stuff. And you mentioned stoicism as well. Are there? Yeah. We're getting a little. We're starting to run a little short on time, but I'm I'm wondering, are there like philosophical questions that you feel like? you know, you still struggle with or maybe even struggle with more now that you're no longer in like the religious tradition? Are there things that like keep you up at night about, you know, questions of the universe kind of stuff? Uh, I mean, not really. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we all have like pretty much the same existential dread um, of what, what is my purpose here? is my is my life have any sort of meaning and you know we, we all have those sort of fleeting thoughts from time to time mm-hmm. um, but you don't feel like you went through like a uh, philosophical transition at all leaving the faith actually um i think uh so i mentioned stoicism um mm-hmm. stoicism was was very helpful um while i was transitioning or deconstructing i read a book called um choice theory mm-hmm. um and it was it was it didn't i don't think it called itself stoic but it was very stoic and it was it was very much um you are can, in control of your own reactions like that's the only thing you can control is your mm-hmm. rea- you can't control what happens to you but you can control how you react to it um mm-hmm. so i have like my world crumbling down around me a world that i dedicated you know 15 years of my life six years in seminary um just tumbling down i realized it's it's all bullshit and i like what mattered is my reaction to it like do do i I, at first i want to be like i wasted my time Mm -hmm. like that's that's a reaction should i be having that reaction is is it was it a waste of time because now i'm in a better place now I'm a, mm. a more critical thinker and now I'm helping other people to think critically as well based off of my own experiences. So was it a waste of time? Well, no, my reaction to that is no, I, I don't think so. I, um, I didn't get the job I was planning for, but my education, right. my experience is serving a purpose um, that is greater than myself. Right. And, uh, it reminds me of the Zen cone, right? About, um, you know, how do you really know that something is actually a bad outcome? 
you know, it's interesting to me that you talk about it through a stoic lens. I have been sort of philosophically critical of stoicism to some degrees. And this is an interesting example where, you know, it seems to me it's not true that you only have control over your your responses, right? Your reactions mm -hmm. in that sense. I'm sure you, you know had, way more about it than I do. Well, well, no, it's not just that. But I mean, like, you know, you, you intuitively can, like, look at this and think, like, you had control over your ability to leave seminary, right? Like, you changed... I imagine you made some other choices or changes to your life that, like... We're, we're possibly aided by your ability to manage your emotional reaction better. But I think, you know, I worry that sometimes when people talk about like, all I can do is change my, my emotional reaction. What that often can sound like to me is, you know, I can't change the situation that I'm in. I can only change how I react to the situation, but like you can change the situation you're in. It seems like you, you went to a much better situation for you. There's, there's also a lot of, atheists who have a mm -hmm. very unhealthy reaction to their deconstruction. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm not saying I'm not cynical. I definitely am. But there's a lot of atheists out there that are just, they, they do too much. You know, they, they're very, very angry. Um, they, they mm. pick fights where they don't need to pick fights. They cling to conspiracy theories in order to mm -hmm. make Christians look bad. Um, it's like that's like that's on you. Like, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Um, there's there's a lot of atheists that refuse to dialogue with Christians who don't want anything to do with Christians. Um, mm -hmm. um, Seth Andrews is his wife is a Christian. Um, Bart Ehrman's wife is a Christian. Dr. Josh Bowen's wife is a Christian and they get ridiculed for that. Why are you married to, you're an atheist. Why are you married to a Christian? Blah, blah, blah. Like it's, it's because they don't let their atheism rule their life. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, we're getting a little short of time. Maybe we can talk in the like VIP yeah, section about, no, 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 absolutely. It's a really good, um, topic. Because part of the stuff that I really care about is helping with the like philosophical side of that spiral that I think you're describing that some people, you know, when they when they go through that deconstruction process, end up deconstructing their own moral frameworks because they feel like they can't ground them anymore. It's so like the I'm pendulum gonna... swings too hard in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that some afterwards. But um, I got to get here to torturing you in a second. And before I do that, I try to like. Oh, wrap sorry. up with yeah wrap up with folks who you know like something that was useful to you as a resource for in this case i guess your sort of your journey through these issues um you know was there something that really helped you you've mentioned stoicism um you mentioned that one book were there any other like books or things that you read that you know you felt like really helped um it is, is going to be cliche as fuck, but um, God's Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. It's okay. Um, it's okay to be cliche. We all have, you know, yeah, we all got to start I, somewhere. I, I read that book and The God Delusion uh, as mm. a Christian, and I reread them both as an atheist. And they read very different. Which um, was better. <laughs> I, I like The God Delusion, or, or God's Not Great, sorry. Um, mm. I'm not as big a fan of the, the God Delusion as most atheists seem to be. I I think I prefer mm. Victor Stanger's um, God the Failed Hypothesis. Um, that one uh, was was more interesting to me for some reason. Yeah, you're um, not sure why, though? I, I'm really not. I'm not sure why. That's cool. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> uh, but aside from that, yeah, just um, learning that there's another community out there, or, or that there are several communities out there that are full of people just like me. Mm -hmm. um, because... I didn't know that I felt very alone at the time. Um, and so I had started listening to, you know, different podcasts and things and realizing there's more people out there. So just mm -hmm. re one of the things that you, you miss the most when you leave the church, when you leave religion is that sense of community because the church has that the church is very good at that. You have a community, mm -hmm. you have a close group of friends, you meet every week, two or three times a week, even for one or two hours at a time. You may go out to a movie, you may go out and get ice cream together, you may go over to your friend's house and play rock band for three hours. Like the, 
you have that community. And when you leave a church, you don't have that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, there is that missing from the atheist community. So, so it's like, Mm -hmm. once you realize, Hey, there is that group of people out there that are, that have that kind of potential. We just don't have, we just can't facilitate those type of meetings. Uh, right. But the Find community local is there. Orgs, right. Yeah. Go, yeah. go, go, go join your local orgs. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that's, it's interesting that you describe it that way because, you know, a lo- nowadays I think in movement atheism, there's a lot of like understandably being critical of the new atheist period and like the, the problems, the excesses, the, you know, white male centric. So hold on. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Not to, not to impede on your schedule. What what is your distinction between? Because I'm curious. Um, yeah. You mentioned movement atheism and um. Fuck, what was the other one? New atheism. New atheism. Yeah. Um, yeah. Movement atheism and new atheism. What is your distinction between those two? Yeah. So I understand new atheism as being a period of movement atheism so we can think of movement atheism as going you know back fairly far and you know being having different levels of like actual activity at various points in history and it seems like in the especially post 9 11 period of the 2000s for at least you know 10 years or so there's this big surge in movement atheism centered around you know the four horsemen right and you you referenced two of them um and that like that was a period where a lot of people were reading that content were dealing with the culture war stuff that was going on around islam and things and i think were feeling like they wanted to push back on you know the christian nationalism stuff they were seeing in america by getting more involved uh, in that, in that movement. So it was that period. And then I think, you know, as I, as I see it, there was then conflict and some schisming over social justice, wokeness, culture war kinds of stuff. Um, And that sort of, that kind of signified the end of the new atheism period. And now we have this like, unnamed current period that we're in it seems like where some groups are trying to you know diversify and become more sort of socially conscious and other groups are going in the other direction and want to only talk about atheist stuff and not about other things that's how i sort of understand it okay that makes sense with what you're yeah, it does. I, just, I just want to get your thoughts there, mm-hmm. there's a lot of a lot of atheists try to like subcategorize themselves and subcategorize right. other people and I hear all these terms and mm-hmm. I'm like, but there's so much nuance there. And I'm like, what, what is. Yeah. So in yeah. my mind, <laughs> new atheism is sort of synonymous with like the benefits of a bunch of a couple of very famous sort of high profile atheists bringing a large number of people into these communities, bringing oh, okay. a lot of interest into these communities. But at the same time, also being part of things like the intellectual dark web in a way that pushed a lot of people out of these communities because they you know didn't want to deal with the anti-woke nonsense and so Mm. um you know it sort of is viewed to me as like this double-edged period in that kind of way but i think you know what i was trying to say originally was um i think it's important to recognize that even though there were a lot of problems with that period, there are lots of folks like yourself who did come in during that period, found those texts from those problematic individuals um, valuable um, and that we need to sort of think about and talk about those things in a way that is um, inclusive to people who had that experience because it could be very easy to just bash on that period in a way that might feel alienating to people who were like, well, that was actually what got me into all of this. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I appreciate that. Absolutely. So now, unfortunately that means I have to torture you. Um, So this is, all right, let's do it. This is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So what's usually going to happen? I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those oh. are your only choices. 
This is a philosophy activity. You do not get to hedge. You don't get to explain what you mean, right? It's just real or not real, okay? Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. So let's just check first of all. Is there anything you think in the universe that is real? Oof. We're off to a good start here. <laughs> Philosophically, no. <laughs> you don't think there's anything that's real? We can't 100% demonstrate that anything's real, no. Okay. So, all right. Well, I'm going to go through the list, and we'll see if you feel like any of these things are actually real. Should I say yes just for the sake of moving forward? No, it's okay. If you want to say no, we'll see if we see we'll see if you stick with that. It's always a fun game. I'll, I'll uh, say yes. Are you sure? Okay, we'll find out if anything is real. So the external world, real or not real? Real. Colors, real or not real? Oh Jesus! Real. Phenomenal consciousness, which is the inner world of experience. Phenomenal consciousness. See, this is this is those terms that uh. Yeah, just you know that you have uh, experiences inside of your mind. Yes. Okay. Ugh. There's so much nuance in these questions. Uh, free will, <laughs> real or not real? Not real. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Real. Races? Real. Species? Real. Morality? You're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> there are no stakes here. You're fine. Real. Okay. Right. Yeah, going with that. Okay. So rights. Not objectively, but anyway, I'm not allowed to explain. So just real. Okay. So rights are real as well then? Yes. Rights are real. Okay. Knowledge. Yes. Real. God or gods. Not, mm, God damn it. This is not a yes or no question. Not real. <laughs> it's fun. Rarely do I have an atheist who complains about that one. It's usually a freebie <laughs> for um, society. Real or not real? Not real. Money? Not real. Numbers? Real. Fictional characters? Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. <laughs> Real. Sandwiches. Real. I'll play your game. <laughs> Science. Real. Natural laws. Real. Beauty. Not real. Love. Not real. Causality. Oof. Mm. Real. And finally, time. Not real. All right. You survived. How do you feel? Pretty nervous. What are the results? <laughs> there are no am results. I, There's no am I a true atheist? The, it's, the it's the journey that matters, not the consequences. The okay. experience of realizing how bad your understanding of real is. So yeah, that was fun. I appreciate it. I appreciate the chat. Um, we'll stick around and chat a little bit about the cynical atheist problem. And before we do that, do you want to let folks know one more time where they can find your content in the various places? Yeah, primarily I can be found on TikTok, Captain Dadpool 86. I produce primarily educational and entertaining uh, content. Um, I also am on Twitter, Instagram. I have a Patreon. I do a weekly hangout every Saturdays with my patrons. Um, and yeah, pretty, pretty much everything but Facebook. You can find me. Fair enough. Well, Captain, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for your TikTok service. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me on. I was glad to meet you at the con. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. As always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, I changed this name at the beginning of winter, Dude, Fix the Vote, That Bastard, Neil Polzin, 
Ch Chad T and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. And you can follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter what or how you practice, you are the void and the void is you. Mm -hmm.